Welcome to the Indian Science Show. A podcast where we talk about Indian stuff, science, and different worldviews. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the show. Food. It makes our bellies big during the holidays. It's what our kids bug us about pretty much every morning. And it's one of the most important aspects of renewing our cultures, bringing sovereignty back to the people, and building strong relationships with our food again. And today's guest has been doing just that. Patrick Yawaki has been involved in all sorts of food sovereignty projects over the years, which is how I met him in the first place. But we didn't think about having him on the show right away until Annie came across him. Right, Annie? Yeah, while we were doing research for the food sovereignty episode, I came across Patrick's advocacy work on the Flathead Reservation. And in particular, he had created an implementation plan that can be utilized for the creation of food systems that reflects cultural heritages, localized agricultural production, and eliminates harmful agricultural practices. Though food sovereignty was one of the tables he sits at, I was very interested that he could be found at many different tables, which deals with voting and civic engagement, along with community organizing. Yeah, and if you want to learn more about his work and what he's up to right now, make sure you go on Facebook and look up the foods, uh, the People's Food Sovereignty Program, as well as Decolonized Turtle Island, which is a nonprofit that he started with his wife. Is that correct? Yeah, sure his wife, right. Regina. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I didn't even know, but I know Regina. Shout out to you, Regina. Old school. <laughs> I remember you were one of my favorite co-workers at Kotak Nuke all those years ago. So if you're listening to right now, um, that's awesome. I never would have imagined I'd be working with your husband. I don't know how many years down the road. So it's been a, it was a pleasure recording. I know you wanted him on for a long time. Yes. So I'm very excited for all of our listeners to keep listening about what Patrick does with his life, um, with voting, uh, food sovereignty, and along with all of his tips for being Indigenous in the modern world. Yes. And he gave one tip that I had never heard before and was very had a big impact on me. So I encourage you to listen to the end. And if, if you really want to, you could always skip to the end which is the benefit of podcasts, right? So thanks for joining us, everyone. Enjoy the show. All right, and we are recording. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank, Thank you for having for me. Yeah, it's... And, Annie's, and I have been talking about bringing you on for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So, and it was... I think it was Annie's idea originally. And then I thought, yeah course yeah i think we started talking about it when we were doing our food sovereignty episode your name came across and i had definitely wanted to hear more about yeah, that, that. that makes sense. yeah mm-hmm. no i appreciate appreciate this opportunity because i know that uh food sovereignty can be uh, a wide range of topics and and um i know that um just with the you know current interest or it becoming mainstream um, there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings or you know just theories that are being created right now mm-hmm. and 
uh, being able to share some of the, the knowledge or um, some of the research that I've done is something that uh, is um, very important to me. So I appreciate it. Yeah, and that's important to us too. We we really want to highlight people and their work and their their story and the thing the messages they're they're wanting to get out to the world as much as possible. And we're scientists, but we're just like any other human. We're a lot of other things too. So we both thought food have thought food sovereignty is really important for a long time, even though it's not necessarily tied to our research directly. It's all, I know it's always in the back of my mind and mm-hmm. even from just a practical standpoint with prepping, which is how I got into it, I realized, man, if, I, if I'm not sovereign from the store-bought food in some way, I'm dependent on that, I'm kind of screwed if something really bad happens. And I freaked mm-hmm. out about that when I was younger and I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a lot more relaxed about it these days, but it's still important and especially coming into the wintertime it's right at the front of my mind more than it has been in a long time. So Mm -hmm. I'm really glad to bring you on. And I know a lot of your work has been in food sovereignty, but you've done also done a lot of political activism stuff, which food sovereignty can be tied to activism, but it is kind of its own thing. It's, 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 it's like activism helps food sovereignty. It's like a tool for food sovereignty in a way. I think food sovereignty kind of transcends a specific institution like politics. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, if you look at the, the national um, politics, if you look at uh, federal policy and, and definitely during times of need, definitely during times of war, um, our agricultural sector um, is, is considered the backbone of this country and Mm-hmm. And uh, just because, um, you know, the country's gotten, the population's gotten bigger and uh, there's much more of a, a need, um, the industry could say, because of the population size, uh, there's kind of been a disconnect in the in kind of like uh, how we've treated our, our backbone or treated our farmers mm-hmm. and then also the types of foods that we've been, uh, been able to have access to. So. Um, it's, it's a, it's a bridge that I would say has been crumbling and it's time to repair that bridge. Hmm. Yeah, they've been in farmers have been, kind of had a, had a tough break over the last 70 years or so, because at the end of world war two, monocultures were being incentivized at a scale that they'd never been before. And so, and yeah, the world war two seemed to change a lot concerning food systems. And after, and I mean, before World War II, there wasn't really such a thing as like a fast food restaurant or like mass produced processed food. And so again, like you were saying, it was like out of a necessity, we developed all these new systems and technologies because in the name of food sovereignty, because we couldn't rely on anyone else in the world for our food when the world was at war. I mean, that it's, I can't even imagine what that would have been like to live through something like that. Uh, and hopefully we don't ever have to do something like that again. So, but should we have to, I also feel we shouldn't have rely on the federal government for our food either. So, or these big giant companies, again, these, these entities that aren't necessarily tied to our community. And so they, they offer benefits, but they're not always a good thing. Yeah. And those are, you know, and talking about sciences, it's like, uh, 
you know, these corporate giants, you know, you could talk about like Monsanto, Cargill, Archer Daniels, uh, Tyson, Smithfield, like all these huge conglomerates. Um, their, their science is the science of money and how can they tie their business into, into profit. And uh, when you, when you do that, that's when you start cutting corners or you start uh, genetically modifying with, you know, synthetic processes and, um, those types of, um, those types are, are just harmful and, and, um, not just that, but, you know, I don't know if you've seen recently, but you know, the, the people that are working for these companies, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily, you know, the best people to be, um, supplying our food chain. Uh, just, you can look it up in the news, but they're making bets on who gets COVID first on their, on their lines, on their working lines. So it's like, there needs to be a more localization of food and, and definitely, understanding where your food comes from, who makes it. And that's, uh, that's part of it. So is that kind of what plays into the idea of um, food security more or less than food sovereignty? I know that those two words kind of get thrown around. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I mean, food security is like kind of like a baseline. Um, Whenever we talk like uh, Shelly Fiant, chairwoman of CSKT, she's, you know, been a very strong um, um, spearhead for, you know, food sovereignty. And um, something that I'll always, you know, remember is, you know, uh, being able to, you're not, you're not necessarily food or sovereign unless you can say that you can supply all the food for your, for the people that you're taking care of or the people that are in your community. Mm-hmm. And so I look at, you know, food security as kind of like a foundation or, or a baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's, if there is, um, and, and you could say like the CARES Act and and COVID nineteen pandemic, um, those two um, kind of uh, exposed food insecurity in communities, um, things that already you know already existed before COVID, um, mm-hmm. that people were hungry, um, and that people are living you know in low income um, situations and not just having just not having access to you know either quality or abundance of food. And so um, just being able to, um, dude, I lost my train of thought. Hmm. Uh, just trying to be able to, just trying to be able to get, you know, those quality foods to people in need mm-hmm. is a way that is a way that our communities can look at, you know, how, like, you know, what do we need to um, produce, um, you know, how can we create jobs to help these people in these low-income situations? Um, and and food sovereignty per se is like how you how you decide make your you know who's your who's in your leadership, who's making the decisions, what are your decisions being based on, what resources do you have, you know how how are you making the best decisions with what you got for the for the needs that you that you've identified. Yeah. And food security is one of those, one of those identifications. Mm-hmm. For real. I feel the same way. Security is like the baseline. And I was just thinking, as you said, you're saying that it's like security puts the S in sovereignty. Yeah. There's no way you can have sovereignty without security. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, and I know that I get stuck in big picture thinking all the time. And I think that's, what sovereignty is, it's definitely a lot big picture, but it, it involves all the way down to your fingers in the, in the soil. 
And and also like uh, I'm learning that you know there's totally different types of sovereignty too. You know, in, in food sovereignty especially, there's you know like uh, again living off the reservation uh, most of my life, and then coming to a reservation um, and learning the two different types of food systems that exist um, and the people involved. Um, you can you you understand that you know there's a tribal envision of what food sovereignty is, and there's a non-tribal envision, and there and there's you know within the tribal um, vision, there's all these you know we have our historical traumas and you know uh, our assimilations to current systems and and status quo and and uh, you know you have, like each community is different, and you know you want to you want to romanticize you know going back to traditional ways of life and things like that, but you know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, tribal people that are in you know agriculture, mostly ranching, um, just haven't had you know proper education on how to manage you know manage conserve lands, conserve resources, um, how to um, ensure that they're you know that um, you know that they have all the resources that they have access to those resources and that they know how to use them. Um, it's something that uh, we can we can try to get tribal food sovereignty to understand that you know there's so many different ideas and you know processes to this and the more that are involved uh, the more sovereign or more ability the tribe can say you know we really did look at what we have and what we do need and and how can we make this work into a system that you know can feed us all mm-hmm. yeah the, so before we get too much into food sovereignty, I really wanted to ask you this question. This is something I'm curious about pretty much everyone in, that I meet. But uh, the, just if you'd be willing to, would you, will you share a favorite memory that you have from when you were a kid? And uh, maybe something that was really impactful or had a really, that, that you can pinpoint that led you to where you are today. Or it could be just something funny or something fun that one of your favorite memories in general um well food sovereignty like i've always been like um i always thought i was going to go to business or getting into business and stuff so i was like I, I i was like a cell phone i sold cell phones for a period of my life like a cell phone dealer and um being able to um experience like a low-income community um where i was um learning that um uh, the local high schoolers had their own like little economy going on where they were selling phones and making money and even traveling out of state to go pick up phones. Um, and they were making their own money that way without having a, a, you know, access to jobs and things and learning about, you know, their lifestyles and, and uh, learning that, you know, uh, they lived in an apartment that was right across the street from a gas station. And then like, a um, it's like a checkers burger shop. And then, uh, uh, Jimmy John's it's just like all fast food and people call it corn market gas station where it's just mostly everything all the foods that are in there are a byproduct of corn um it kind of like it was like it it you know kind of it didn't spark my um it's more of like a motivation because I understood that you know these kids don't have access to good foods and I asked them like why are you eating that stuff why you why do you choose to eat that and then they're like, well, we, we just don't have a ride to the grocery store. And I was like, well, what do you, how do you get to the grocery store? They're like, 
if we want to go to the, you know, the good grocery store, it takes two bus routes. We have to get on two different buses to get to the good grocery store. And if we want to get to like the mediocre market, we could take one, but it's, you know, they don't really have that much stuff there. And so, you know, that kind of like uh, opened my eyes to, uh, you know, we could, we could be living across a street and then the person living across that street might be in a whole total different like uh, economic uh, level or, you know, situation that, you know, I'm not perceiving in my day to day life, but they're living it every day. And, and that, that was troubling to me because I'm like all these, like, I care about these kids. I care about my community. Um, we don't want people to go hungry. We don't want people to have to be forced to eat this food. And so I started uh, giving them rides to the grocery store every week and things like that. And, and um, like, that was just, you know, just, you know, being, being a good neighbor. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, I would say like, uh, Growing up, like a few years later, um, when my parents were doing work in Standing Rock, um, we would go door to door. And that's kind of probably what got me into my get out the vote stuff, going door to door canvassing and just being comfortable in any country. But there's a story where we met this uh, this elderly woman. And, um, you know, we were making multiple visitations with her um, because she was just such a nice woman. And uh, she always had a good story to tell. And she would beat us sometimes. And, um Eventually, the last time we went to go visit her, um, or I guess the, the time before we, the last time we visited her, we, she told us a story about when Subway moved into Standard Rock Reservation and how uh, when, when Subway opened up that she started crying. Like she was, she was like, it was like uh, tears of happiness because um, Standard Rock just never had uh, fresh vegetables available to them. And, that subway, you know, that subway is a big corporation as it is, was the first, you know, access to fresh vegetables that this community had. And so she was, um, she, she told us that she was just, um, you know, it's just like tears of happiness that she had. But the second time that we went there, um, we learned, or we found out that she passed away and that's just due to the, you know, lack of access that she had to a proper, um, tele- telephone system to be able to call 911 for emergency. And so that just like also, you know, just opened my eyes to understand that, you know, like um, there are people in this world that are limited to the access um, of the things that, you know, that, you know, I've taken for granted. And I know that, you know, the broader um, American public takes for granted whenever, you know, whenever they step out of their, you know, the coverage areas or whatever. And so that's kind of like where my, you know, like my motivation, again, has come from is understanding that you know we may not be seeing these people day to day but they are out there and they're hurting and trying to find solutions is probably um uh the best uh way that i could be you know use my motivation yeah i know that's what um ledger is always talking about is uh don't talk about an issue if you don't have some sort of solution to kind of follow it or helping come up with solutions and uh man yeah, um, food deserts are an extremely interesting thing to look at when it comes to reservations or even large cities. Um, and yeah, it's it's always hard to then, what are some of your ideas then um, to kind of supplement these healthy, fresh foods to these places that have large food deserts? 
it's a big envision, but uh, it and and it's talked about in in the in terms of food sovereignty or um, the broader like you know tribal trade systems, you know re reconstructing the tribal trade systems mm-hmm. in a modern day. Um, you know, I strongly believe that you know that when we work together, um, good things can happen. Mm-hmm. And um, working as a collective in in Indian country towards a greater goal or collaboration is something that you know like we've done in the past and you know like we have like Chaco Canyon as a representation of that uh, just you know like a huge trading center where tribes from all over Turtle Island would meet and trade not just you know goods and materials but but ideas and ceremonies and ways of life and understandings and uh, there's a lot more um, appreciation probably that we um, would get out of that um, if those if those like types of systems existed today. Um, and I look at other country or other indigenous communities um, around the world, like how how you know with you know with their attacks of colonial colonization assimilation on their cultures, how you know how are they thriving today? And there's a lot of you know a lot of uh, indigenous communities across the world who. Um, who use agriculture as, you know, as their uh, main ways of life or main ways of making a living. And, and those have turned into, and, and it's, you know, it's their centuries of knowledge, you know, their, their um, ability to diversify their food systems, uh, their, their fruits and vegetables um, turned into, you know, like they're some of the most, the biggest leading, um, you know, exported, exotic foods that you could say um, in the world. And, and you could look at like Peru or Thailand um, who have these huge uh, food distribution programs that ship their foods all around the world. And, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at native country or turtle Island and like, why not, why not here? Why can't we have that? Yeah. Why can't we work together to trade foods to, Standing Rock or, you know, Pine Ridge or places we know that can't necessarily, you know, don't have successful growing seasons. How can Mm -hmm. we here on the Flathead with the resources that we have here help them out? And how can they help us out? Mm, For real. You know, when that reminds me a lot of uh, just looking at human history, the, the trend that I've seen as far as, the organization between more pastoral or hunter-gatherer types of civilizations compared to the sedentary city-dwelling civilizations where they could support massive populations through these agricultural practices. What, what I've seen, though, is that in the areas where you can't really grow much, that's where pastoralism takes over and often horse grazing, especially in the open steps of Eurasia and stuff. And similar here, when, especially when the horse came, the, it just, boom, these plains tribes exploded. And when I'm, what I'm thinking though, is that also those areas produced some of the toughest people in the world in human history. It's always been the, like the Mongols or the the Tartars, or like the Huns, or the Blackfeet, or the Lakota, the the or the Comanche. These people that lived on the these really tough these tough environments, um, 
and I was just thinking maybe that's what part of that toughness and that adaptability is not having access to, to large amounts of nutrition and where you have to, you have to diversify and get it from all these different sources. I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? That's kind of just thinking back in human history. How can we use those lessons to, well, I, I, I'm a guide ourselves now, even though we can't really live that way anymore. Yeah, no, I'm Zuni Pueblo and like, uh, just, you know, an important, important food to us is corn. And Mm -hmm. so, um, that's kind of, you know, one of my main, that's like one of my main foods that I grow is, is corn and being able to learn about, you know, like how, like the timeline of corn and like, it's, you know, there's not necessarily like a, uh, a definite point in time of where, when it was, you know, um, developed or or like, uh, you know, observed in, in the, you know, the wildlife or that, that, that grass, that Zioto grass, but we can learn that it started in an, in an area. It was, it was cared upon by hunter gatherers to a point where it was, um, it was manipulated by their interaction to where it could be grown domestically and that with that domestication um they were able to create you know um you know an identity with ceremonies and traditions and, and practices agricultural practices able to build their communities and then with that when they had surplus they were able to trade and and with that with that trade they were able to trade for other goods that they may not have like buffalo um, Zunis didn't have buffalo, so hmm. we would make the travel to go trade our corn for buffalo meat or buffalo robes. Yeah, I've heard stories where the Blackfeet would trade bison robes. I mean, really high quality stuff for camas. Yep. And, uh, yeah. and so it's that it's it's you know, and um, a lot of times you know Western Western uh, views on Indian culture makes us look like we're always fighting with each other, but, um, you know, I, I strongly believe that, uh, you know, there was a time where we were working together and that we understood that, you know, like, um, there wasn't any, any good that came out of like argument or destruction or death and that working together would, was probably, uh, more sustainable for everybody, you know, coming up with, you know, like, counting coup was you know just a representation that we didn't want to necessarily kill our enemy um but you know there was a there was an understanding that we're of conservation of resources and and other things um that needed to take place so that everybody could live yeah there's that that old uh noble savage myth that keeps getting perpetuated and then some people take take it to the extreme and say and to where we were totally brutal savages but the reality is is it was diverse and some people i think were cooler than other people and i I mean that's just my opinion a lot of anthropologists and archaeologists and other people social scientists they really don't some of them really don't like that idea of trying to categorize and qualify cultures as being better than others but I'm not one of those. And I think that some cultures are better than others. And what the Aztecs were doing to the Mesoamerican people was genocide. It was an atrocity. And that doesn't mean all those people down there were like that. 
And so, yeah. and same with like up here in the, in our neck of the woods, not everybody was Blackfeet. Not everybody was this, not everybody was that archetypal uh, warrior with the feather in their hair on the open plains. And not everybody had access to the same stuff. So we had to trade. And I've always heard that, I mean, there was definitely fighting that happened. And sometimes people died, but often it was just the young people, especially the young men. Because, and they, the, for, and I can only really speak for the people that I've been learned this from, from often it was Blackfeet elders or Kootenai or Salish, just my, some of my elders that I've been around have often told me that it was, there was just this agreement between the people that you, I mean, use, there usually wasn't any major fighting, but they didn't, they couldn't tell the young men what to do. And it was a part of their growing up to go out and experience that conflict. And there was cultural mechanisms like counting coup to help avoid, because the reality is once someone got to 20, 25 years old, that was a huge loss to the tribe. You can't really, it's, it's, you can't really afford to lose many people once they've survived that to that age. Cause most kids didn't even make it to five back in those days. That's why we were so healthy. Most of the people that made it were just tough. We're tough people. Yeah. And we also lived health, lives that were way more conducive to things like bone health and metabolic health. We just weren't eating and a lot of carbs and, and sitting around a lot. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's getting back to, you know, like, uh, healthier lifestyles. Most definitely. Mm -hmm. Got to, got to learn how to count coup in the modern age. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, uh, exercising right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And got to know your enemy. Yeah, First, not, you got to know your enemy. And that's the cool thing though, is, um, the principle as I understand it is it, is it's, it's a violent act. Because in a way, you're letting them know that you can, I can kill you right now, but you don't. And so it's, it's that constant reminder, I think. And I see this in a lot of indigenous ceremonies is this reminder between both sides of nature that it's destructive and creative at the same time. It's violent and peaceful at the same time. And that's always the, the way I've always seen being a warrior is you have to balance the aggressive and the tender and, and, and be able to, because especially even in the midst of a battle, if you're fighting for your life, if you're just complete aggression, you're not going to be in touch with your feelings and the fact that you're getting overwhelmed and you're not breathing and things like that. And you might get yourself and other people killed. So it's yeah. a weird thing, this whole balance stuff. Um, I think that's my life's mission really is to find my own balance in my life. And to hopefully help other people find it for themselves, if I can. And that's you know that's that's kind of like in terms of food sovereignty, like why why I got into this is because you know those are the two biggest things is like life and death, and you know with life, you know, um, you know, it takes like breastfeeding, you know, a new baby, and and the mom having to take care of you know herself, having the proper nutrition. Um, the father, you know, um, providing or the mother, you know, in, in reality, you know, we would want our mothers to, you know, have the time with the baby, take care of the baby. And so, mm -hmm. um, taking care of, you know, your, your, your wife and, and, and your baby, 
making sure that they have, you know, what they need. Um, you know, that, that's the initial, initial point in our life. And then, you know, with death, you know, like death always ends with like a feast or something and, and understanding like the life that that person had and talking about that person. Um, and, and like, uh, and those are the, probably the two biggest things that that's the most realist in, in all of our lives is life and death and, and being able to, you know, I've had issues with understanding what death was, but it's like learning to accept it and finding that balance. Yes. That's probably one of our biggest curses is conscious being conscious and aware of our mortality. And it seems to be why we've come up with a lot of the things we've created culturally is to deal and understand death and life and that cycle between the two and that, uh, the kind of that continuation of it. And, and with like, you know, with plants and things like that and growing food and, you know, there is that, and that's kind of like how I came to accept it is that there is an end, there's a beginning and an end to everything. And you witness it every every year um, with, you know, your planning and, and your harvesting. And, and and that has kind of like, you know, broken me into that understanding of renewal, death and renewal. And uh, there isn't, nothing ever ends. It just ends for now. Yeah. Like dust in the wind, huh? <laughs> yeah. Or, or then we can go Carl Sagan style and say, we're, we make it more epic and say we're stardust. <laughs> Return back to the universe. Yeah. Is that a dad joke? I'm not. I'm still not sure what dad jokes are, but I've been told that I tell good dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Is that one? I don't know how what yeah. qualifies. Yeah, it's, I think so. If, yeah. If it can cause an eye roll, it's a good yeah. dad. Joke. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I think puns, like a pun, that's probably often what dad jokes are. Is yeah. Bad puns. Bad puns. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Oh yeah, man, it's, that's a tough thing. And so this is the Indian science show and we've struggled a lot trying to define what that is and what science is. And I think Annie and I have differing opinions on opinions on a lot of things, but for us, I think that we can definitely agree that um, science isn't exclusive to Europeans and it wasn't a European invention and Western science is a misnomer. What do you think about that? Like the the labels that are flying around around things like native science, indigenous science, um, or traditional knowledge, uh, because I know you are, your training is in the in the governance stuff, right? And so yeah, I know that you're going to have a different background in your understanding of what indigenous science is. So, and I know that that term gets brought up in the political context and in the activist context a lot. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up because I see a lot of mixing going on where people mix science with activism and they should definitely work together, but it doesn't seem like it's always functional when a scientist is pursuing science in the name of activist goals. What do you think about Uh that? Well, um, I, w- I would say my, my earliest uh, perceptions of like indigenous science was um, it was during a math and science camp that I as an indigenous math and science camp for um, uh, 
high school students, entering high school students to seniors, senior level um, at the University of Minnesota. And um, I had really great um, camp counselors for that who, you know, were professional indigenous people. And um, they've, you know, you know, worked with the Science Museum Minnesota and, you know, work, uh, work as professors with the University of Minnesota or our teachers at local high schools and teaching science. And it's really important to see, um, you know, other Native people in those positions um, doing that work um, so that you know that, you know, um, so as a young person, there's role models and there's, you and growing up, you know, that there's an end game, you know, that, you know, that you can become a professional in this. And so um, that really, you know, that really connected me to understanding that um, Native people had, you know, technologies, um, you know, before uh, Western colonialization. And um, those types of, um, those types of sciences and mathematics, um, you know, determined, you know, uh, we were, we learned that um, the Aztecs, knew the distance to the moon um, closer than a computer until the 1980s. Like it took till the eighties to create a computer that could definitely find Whoa. out how far the moon That's was. That's crazy. Through. I didn't know that. And, and if you look at their temples, you know, their, their pyramids, they're like, uh, they're created in a way that resembles their mathematic and science and their connection to astronomy. And, and they were, and then that got me into understanding how, in tune our people were are you know across turtle island just being observant and being you know observant is one of the you know one of these practices in in western science mm-hmm. and and it's and and then i learned it's like well native people did more observing than they did manipulation and testing and and that data collection was done more on on you know just watching how you know like watching a bear to see what he ate or he or she ate so that we could know, you know, what was safe for us to eat. You know, that that's a science experiment in itself. And, and um, learning that, you know, indigenous people, indigenous cultures have a, a different way of looking at the world than Western people. Um, and we have, again, we have our own needs and, and you know today we call it conservation efforts or whatever you know the preserving our lands or preserving our natural resources but native people have been doing this for since time immemorial and and you know if we can put modern day terms to something that we've been doing since forever um and incorporate that into uh public policy uh that you know these are ways that you know native people native communities can get their needs met, can find, you know, leadership or, you know, can define, you know, um, um, structural programs in their communities that can benefit them or benefit their science or mathematics or the way that they data collect or, you know, how they, how they perceive the world that, um, as long as, you know, we learn, you know, how we can better, um, promote our, I, you know, our envisions or our ideals into the modern world. Um, that's a good way to do it. It's just to, it's trying to um, bridge that gap of, of our old practices and um, 
what we understand of how how we get change to happen in a modern world and and bridging those and and finding how we can um, you know bring those old ways to a modern day hmm. and so that's how that's how you know with uh, my political activism and and like you could say kxl pipeline um is something you know that i work on that and 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 the you know destruction that 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 project could bring to the water and the land you know which could affect you know agriculture on those you know in those areas that can you know has a domino effect and a ripple effect to the rest of you know rest of indian country and the rest of you know america that um that we need to we need to be able to express ourselves in these ways or else they they the other side of the table will not hear us they won't understand us and so we kind of have to like learn their game and kind of um you know use it to our advantage hmm. yeah so it's like the the method it where in the scientific method there's that that one of those first phases there is the observation and forming hypotheses right so it's like we emphasize the observational phase more and spend yeah. time there more and I definitely agree with that, that, that that's the, really the primary difference because the tools we can use don't seem to really matter. I mean, we could still use computers and have it be indigenous science. And it's really the, the, more about the philosophy and the approach to the observational method and things like that. So it's really interesting. So with that being said, do you consider yourself a scientist or, do you, or an activist or um, do you consider yourself a politician? Or do you a mixture none of the above, uh, some of the above, all of the above? I guess my, uh, I guess my my, um, you know, before before I went into my education, I viewed myself as, um, again, like I was a business person, or you know, like I, I wanted to get into business, or wanted, you know, like this like Western view of what a professional was. Yeah. But like as I, you know, as I got through my education. And understanding who this country, United States, and um, you know, being a member of an enrolled, a federally enro- or enrolled in a federally recognized tribe, um, not having enough to be um, enrolled in another, or you know, having restrictions to be enrolled in another that I could be, you know, enrolled in, um, being limited to identity. Hmm. Uh, um, I just considered myself an American person living in a modern day world, and we have, you know, we, you know, sorry, you people tend to try to for a sec. You put this in a box. Your, uh, you broke that there for a sec. You oh, okay. consider yourself a, a what? Living in the modern world. I consider myself Native American, growing or being and and okay. Western society tries to put us in a box. Hmm. Is the internet okay? Yeah, it's good now. Okay. Yeah, just that, you know, Western society tries to put us in a box or stereotype us. And there's so much, there's so much, like, uh, (laughs) we have so much hats that we have to wear and, and, it's like, it's not just, it's not so simple to say that I am this or I am that because I am many things. 
and I, and I just try to balance it all. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It feels very similar. And there's this idea I've come across recently called keep the main thing, the main thing. And I struggle with that a lot, kind of bouncing around to different ideas and different things I'm interested in. And I've realized that I do get my work best work done when I kind of move everything else out of the way. And I just focus on one thing for when I need to do it. And for science, that's really important. And uh, I'm breaking up. Oh, okay. So I think, uh, yeah, uh, the internet is going to be just one of those weird things with these Zoom calls, but we'll work through it the best we can. So I know, Annie, you're very, you were interested in the policy side of things. And he, that's, I'm sure that was probably a huge part of your training, right? With the tribal governance stuff. Is that learning? Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, as somebody who has kind of been at the level of completely starting something new on a with a community with food sovereignty, um, I'm curious to kind of see what have you learned in the beginning initial steps that would kind of help another community get started. Um, like what was the kind of steps or the policies that you needed to look at to begin with to, to kind of move forward and to kind of get your ideas to was there certain people that you reached out to or where did you kind of start off when you were looking at policies with kind of food sovereignty, specifically on the Flyhead Reservation? Most of most of the initial work was done through meetings that I had that not just I, but um, his name is Michael Billington and, and um, that we had with uh, local business leaders, local tribal um, council members, uh, tribal department heads, um, landowners, mm-hmm. and just hearing what they had to say, what their envision was, and then putting it into, putting it into a document that just resembles what they want or what they wanted. And then you got to find like-minded people um, that understand the work that needs to get done. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like uh, how illusion and I met too is through those efforts. And um, I guess, you know, once, once you have a general assessment, there's, there's much more thorough um, and that can, but, uh, that was the initial step. And then through the educational part is like developing, um, programs from, you know, programs that exist, how, how, cause you know, your program, you know, have too much of like a burden on itself. Mm-hmm. And so you always got to, again, find the solutions and, and there's programs out there that, that exist. And, you know, if it wasn't for the settlement exposing, you know, like USDA, um, you know, not working with tribal people um, the way they should, that, you know, just was that that was happening and that there are these programs that exist that Native people have, and we just never had the education to go after it. And so it's, it's those programs. Um, burden on on what you know what it takes to really feed your people, you know, following those 
following those values. Um, and then working with tribal leadership, uh, understanding, you know, who are the players in these, in these activities, um, and, and how, how you can make it happen. You know, I'm not a tribal member from here, so there's probably a lot of, you know, political baggage that I hold trying to push something like this, but, um, you know, it's just like, uh, nature will find its way, I guess, you know, like oh, what yeah. needs to happen will find its way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we try to, you know, as human beings, we try to like, say like, we want, you know, we want things to go our way, but sometimes you just got to let it happen. And that's kind of like what I've been doing is like, I, I tend to just ask the creator for guidance and courage. And if there's a stepping stone that he wants me to take or, or he or she, we don't know what creators that we can, that I will take that step if it needs be. Hmm. So, um, being on the Flathead Reservation, uh, have you engaged a lot with the non-Indigenous community? Because I think we are, the Flathead Reservation is, what, 60% non-Indigenous? Yeah, there's about seven, approximately 17,000 non-tribal people live here, and there's approximately 6,000 tribal people that live here. And so having having that understanding, I've, and like discussions with non-tribal people is, you know, like there's a fear. There's always a fear of, you know, like what happens when the food stops coming in and, and all those things. And, 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 you know, there's always a fight with like the lake and the dam mm-hmm. and all these things, you know, um, you know, we do live in a pretty racist community. And so, you know, there's all these background knowledge and, and, there is always, and that's something my grandpa taught me. There's like, he always like, he'd always say, don't forget there are good non-tribal people. And so that's, you know, that's a perception that I live is like, not all, not all non-tribal people, you know, have it, have it out for us. And there are, there are good, good people out there and working with them is, is, um, is gratitude for us, for myself. And I appreciate, you know, people that are willing to, you know, step up because right now it's so hard for people and there's so many people that are willing to step up and help out their fellow neighbor. Mm-hmm. That's what community is all about. And, and for all the racist people out there, you know, like uh, you could hate me now, but, but you know, if things do take off and we're able to feed our people here, then, you know, I don't think they would want to be enemies. You know, mm-hmm. they, they probably would want, you know, to work it out. And it's just probably their misperceptions. And, and so I just, I just try to keep going forward and, and understand that um, there's good people out there and good people are stepping up and just mm-hmm. appreciate them as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I work a lot with um, non-Indigenous mm-hmm. members kind of on the environmental education side of, of things. And um, one of the questions that they ask me the most about is how do they approach a indigenous issue without feeling like they're going to appropriate the issue. Um, So what are some kind of tips then that you can give for non-indigenous people that um, want to help with food sovereignty or kind of helping communities um, to not feel like they are appropriating it? 
Yeah. Um, there's a, their SKC put out a book. It's called indigenous research methods. Um, um, did you guys hear that? Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. is that, yeah. Okay. Is that with, uh, figuring Tyro's wife? What's her name? Uh, I don't know her name offhand, but it's a publication that SKC has and it's for, you know, it's for these non-tribal, um, organizations that want to get into these, you know, into these projects. So yeah, uh, that, so that's a good, did they good, publish that? Yeah. It, it, well, I don't know if I've read that. Yeah. It's yeah. a really, it's a really good book. And, and, um, the best way that I would say is to, for any non-tribal person trying to get into tribal communities, listen, don't talk and listen. Yeah. And, um, I, w- I would say you'd get better information from that and and being able to put the native person ahead of you you know kind of like like what i try to do is just like lead from behind you know like i don't i don't want to be the necessarily the person that has to always go and be you know the spearhead or whatever if there's other people around me that are that have the skills and the ability to do it um i just try to help elevate them so those non-tribal people could elevate their person by just showing that appreciation for them or mm-hmm. um, doing listening rather than talking, you know, definitely over talking or um, stopping somebody from talking is like, you know, like a big no, no in Indian country. And um, yeah, yeah. it's about, it's about respect. Bag, huh? <laughs> yeah. Just don't be, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that seems like common courtesy, even though I just interrupted you. But <laughs> now the Zoom, the Zoom internet causes the interruption. It, it is Technology weird. Is never as fast as we want it. Yeah, it's it's odd to try to have a conversation through Zoom with the with the leg and the uh, the little skips and stuff. Yeah. So far, it's been we've only had a couple moments where you're cutting out. So so far, okay. so far, so good. All right. Yeah, man. Um, so that, that that's, I think, uh, something I've been, I've really thought about a lot is that the, just that diff, the, the difference between indigenous and non-indigenous or native, non-native. And since I was pretty young, I've been of the opinion that I didn't know the words until kind of recently, but that, that we're all indigenous. Because I one, once I learned about the Scottish my Scottish ancestors, I was like, well, those are just indigenous people in Europe. And, and then I learned more and more about European history. And I'm till this day, I'm still, I've yet to be convinced that Europeans aren't just indigenous people from Europe. The Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy, uh, even things like Descartes, Galileo, all these works, all these things that have come out of Europe, that's all indigenous knowledge but it's indigenous to Europe. So I think remembering, I try to remind these quote unquote non-natives that they're indigenous too. You just got to remember your ancestors and that knowledge that comes there. And you you don't just have ancestors that are Italian, but from that same place, there's an Etruscan lineage that was almost a completely separate civilization from the Greeks. And they're almost totally unknown to modern people. But that's an awesome story. And those stories, I think, is where we can all remember that we, we're all indigenous to somewhere. 
and remembering that we can be a little bit humble and remember we all have something to learn from each other. And that's where it starts, which what you're saying there is you gotta be able to listen. And that's tough. It's tough and uh, it requires learning how to, how you learn and being able to like, figure out your own way of being a better listener. Yeah. No, yeah. Being able to, yeah, the colonization of Europe and, you know, the, the practices that they did there and, and the nation states, you know, that they brought over to, that, that type of envision that they brought over to, you know, Turtle Island and, there's there's a there's a major disconnect in you know immigrants to this country you know who have come from Europe and the uh, you know the destruction of their identity as becoming you know americanized and and that's that's kind of like you know i i i tend to tell non-tribal people that too as well is that you know you are you know you came from somewhere your ancestors came from somewhere um and through the period of time, you know, we all had to learn how to make arrows and spears and nets, you know, to live. And it's just tracking your roots far back enough, you know, and, and, it, and, you know, you can, you can compare it to like a native living in, you know, an urban setting traveling, you know, to their res where they never met their family ever before in their life. And that type of, you know, that type of, you know, energy or motivation that they that they have to go knock on a stranger's door, essentially, to to learn who they are, learn where they come from, is something that Native people do, you know, rather often. And it's like, uh, you know, to people, America, the general American public, you know, who, you know, who whose motivations are based on, you know, mostly consumerism and probably feeling a void. Um, with material things or jobs or money that um, that void is created um, from their, you know, their loss of culture or their, their loss of identity. And, and um, if, like uh, in second grade, we had this, we had this, uh, this, this uh, learning um, lesson where we've traveled to each, each classroom had a different country that they represented. And we would go to, you know, one of our teachers represented um, um, Norway, you know, as an example. And, and, you know, Norwegians have done a very good job of documenting their indigenous ways um, prior to the colonization of Europe. And um, you can look at them as, you know, living off the land and living with, you know, living in, in stewardship with the land. Yeah. And, so when you say and, colonization of Europe, what, what do you mean by that? Are you talking about like the Romans or Greeks or uh, the development of nation states recently? Uh, oh, I think might have cut off there for a second. Oh, I can't hear you. Hear me yet? There you go. I can hear you now. Can you hear yeah. me now? <laughs> yeah. You remember that old commercial? Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. Cell phones, man. <laughs> I think that was him for Halloween one year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was thinking, like, yeah, what do you mean the colonization of Europe? Because I, I can think of several things when you mentioned that. Like, uh, it'd be like, you know, Great Britain creating the nation states, going to wars with other countries to, de to define 
borders and things like that. Uh, you know, just uh, certain societies taking, you know, and then you could even say like uh, Brexit or uh, not Brexit, but like uh, the European Union is like the solidification of all that. It's just, uh, you know, through war and, and famine and all these other things, um, countries in Europe have been fighting over, you know, borders, you know, for, I wouldn't, I don't even know since when, cause I'm not that entire uh, land, land. Yeah. It's all about it's land. The first, over land. the first things, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Early nationalism definitely was, uh, it's old. I know of at least as old as William Wallace's time, because that, that was one of the first things that sparked Scott, Scottish nationalism. But it, yeah, it didn't really take hold in Europe till the last few hundred years. And um, yeah, I guess it would have been really the Western Europeans predominantly. And uh, that that's a part of why they couldn't really conquer each other anymore and why Napoleon became so unpopular is at the time there was a sense of national nationalism and people didn't want to be ruled by other people. So, and that that led to all the revolutions including the industrial revolution and it's a very fascinating phase that we're still going through and here in the united states it's younger it's got a much younger national identity and it's very appealing to a lot of people though that's why most immigrants come here is they want to become americans so that's a really interesting thing to try to grapple with as an indigenous man and I'm Scott man growing up here on both reses and also an American citizen where I can vote and I sign up for selective service I pay my taxes it's a you go to Missoula strange thing. yeah I go to Missoula go to the mall <laughs> jump on my cell phone I mean a very much American in many 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 ways but there's still something different about my worldview and it's really just an understanding that kind of understanding and being able to speak that language of experience and understand those experiences. And that's different for everybody where, depending on where you grow up and who we're around. And so it's really, really interesting to look at history and try and understand it because it's so complicated. It's so complicated. We know so little about it. And most people think they know a lot about history. That's that's the funny yeah. thing. And I've been into it since I was really young. And uh I still consider my knowledge just surface, surficial. Just I've barely touched the surface. That's kind of like I graduated last in 2019, June. And so like I took this year and was like uh I just told myself that I needed some experience, you know, if I, if I can't say I can talk about food sovereignty if I haven't done it yet. So um, that's the kind of like what I took this year off is, and and I, and I posted a, a comment on my Facebook just saying, you know, and it's like a, um, a can't quote. It's just saying like um, theory without practice is, is blind or a uh, practice without theory is blind or, and, uh, theory or practice without theory is um, is empty, and theory theory without or practice without theory is blind or something like that. But yeah, I don't I have it offhand. I but, I but, yeah. 
Yeah, but uh, it's just if you know, you can't. You can read all the books in in the world, but if you never go step out into the real world and and experience mm-hmm. what the real world is, the current situation is, then then everything that you're reading doesn't doesn't have any backbone. And mm-hmm. and it and when you have that experience and you have that knowledge, you know, it's wisdom, and that wisdom um, carries. You know, it carries a long way. Uh, definitely with just under, you know, getting people to, to, um, you know, back your efforts or, you know, to kind of buy into what you're doing. Um, you need to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk. Hmm. Yeah. It's like, uh, going out in the world and only relying on your own experience to learn everything and yeah. never lear- learning anything from coyote stories. So it's important to read. It's important to, to, to learn you're, you're the stories of your people because there's a lot of knowledge tied up in those, especially about that, the, the particular place you live. But even the, yeah. the classics from what, from Europe, there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom in the, in those. And you said earlier, you, you want to, you want need to understand your enemy, right? And if you, if you want to play their game, especially. And uh, so I was reading, that reminds me of when I was doing some research on you. Which is kind of weird. I noticed while I was researching, I was like, is this stalking or is it okay because I'm (laughs) doing an interview in a podcast? (laughs) But I came across this article uh, where you were uh, on this community spotlight for the Western Native Voice and you talked about something your grandpa used to tell you about how you need to learn the game better than your enemy. And when I read that, it got me thinking of the some of these old great works that I've come across over the years and that I cherish because partially because I came across them when I was really young and I was like, whoa, this is, this is so fucking awesome. Things like the art of war from Sun Tzu, which is older than the Bible. And in that he talks about that, how you need to know your enemy. He he says things like, you you know, your enemy, you know, yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. But then it also gets me thinking of this other idea that I learned about how, so I played chess and I played chess since I was in second grade and I never really liked checkers. And so what happened though, is I could kick people's ass over and over at chess, but I play a good checkers player and I would get my ass whooped. And that taught me that um, if you are a chess master, you should be going and challenging people at checkers. If you're a checkers champion, there's no point trying to, play against the chess master and that's the way i see trying with activism work like with uh the government the government's game is violence don't want to play that game they're they're too good at it they've been at it for thousands of years so that's that's where i started to really realize that especially now with modern technology and how powerful it is it has to be non-violent any kind of movements any kind of change because especially if you're trying to change people's minds when you put a gun to people's heads they may do it but they're going to resent you for it and they're going to teach that resentment to their children and that i mean it never worked it's never worked throughout history trying to use the government as the tough strong arm to try and strong arm people into being a certain way and so i'm totally against that um i'm kind of rambling um, but anyways, th- that reminded me of that, those books, when you talked about that, that you need to remember your enemy. And it reminds me of why play against 
a chess master when you're a checkers champion. What we should be doing is convincing this chess master to come and play us at a winner takes all game of checkers. (laughs) And that's the way I see like trying to learn the tools for sure. Learn the strategy. So then you can convince them to come play your game instead of playing theirs. And so I just, I was wondering what you thought of that. And if your grandpa talked about that concept of um, like, yeah, definitely you got to know your enemy, but you should be drawing them to play your game, drawing them into play your game and not, instead of seeking to be better at their game because they're always going to be better at it. It's their game. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, and I guess I guess the checker, the, the, the reference to checkers um, would be, you know, like native culture, you know, like yeah. bringing them down to that that envision and, and and what my grandpa was saying is like like you know when he said that that's when I knew I had to become a lawyer and and that's mm-hmm. my end that's my end game is to become a lawyer uh, focused on federal Indian law and and protecting you know native rights and when when he says you know learn the game know your enemy it's like the and you can see it today you know like most most um lawsuits you know that tribes are holding against the federal government they're winning because they've they're they've become educated enough they know what they need to get um through these battles and they're winning these battles and Mm -hmm. so learning learning the game means you know learning their terminology learning their ways going into their courtrooms and and it's not fighting with violence these days. It's fighting with words, fighting with education and knowledge and, and data. You know, data is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can you can see, you know, with all the you know, you could the Trump administration with like all these executive orders that um, that he's pushed uh, are being re- um, overturned by the courts because um, he didn't do it the right way you know he didn't do it the legal way or the way that the courts want to see it and so if you if you look at your enemy and you see that they're not doing it right and that you know we're doing it right because we we're you know we're we're putting the right lawyers in there they're speaking the right way um you know a lot of these um like cobell or salazar or um there's a couple of uh um um just or uh, criminal justice uh, BIA um, issues that tribes are you know winning settlements over and it's like that's that's what I'm saying is learning the game learning the game that they play and, and being better at them at it and uh, that's how I feel like you know if we can get like a whole um, band of indigenous lawyers that's that'd be organization of tribal you know tribal nations and I mean, the sky's the limit if we if we could work together and, and get the right people, um, you know, who, who have the knowledge and who, who can speak the way that um, the other side of the table is, is will only hear them. Um, that's that's uh, that's where I, what I what I what my I view my grandpa meaning by that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sun Tzu says. Know your enemy. Know yourself. Right. So yeah. it's old, old, ancient wisdom. And it seems like there's a form of that lesson in most of the, pretty much every warrior culture I've studied. And uh, that's definitely a part, one of the major 
reasons why the way I see it, why we go on a fast and why you do it by yourself is you got to learn your, you got to know yourself, but a lot of it is to get knowledge and you can learn about the world. And that's one thing, man. Uh, The nature is not always friendly, but it is benevolent. It gives us what we need when we need it. That doesn't mean it's going to be what we want. And so in a way, the enemy is our friend and our enemy, like creator. And so treating it that way and always learning and always being humble too, because that's that's the tough part about um, any of this stuff is always trying to be humble about it. Yeah, I guess like at food sovereignty, like uh, I always make a joke about it because like you always see um, food services of America driving through with their trucks and dropping off foods to like the schools or whatever, the hospitals. And it's like, that's what I mean by know your enemy is like, yeah, that guy coming through this here, selling his cheap food to us when we could be growing it ourselves at yeah. a higher quality. You're like, why, why, why are they doing, I could do that better. Yeah. I could do that better and then go do it. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's a lot of what's happening, um, especially now that COVID and the pandemic happened. It's forced a lot of people to reevaluate their food system, their food strategy, because uh, I think it scared a lot of people, especially when they saw on the news that the toilet paper disappeared from the shelves. I think a lot of people were thinking, what? (laughs) If that's going to go, what's next? Yeah, Yeah. It's fear. You know, I mean... Toilet paper companies should not be running out of toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was—I thought that was silly and very eye-opening to me. That it yeah. teaches me that most people do not understand how a collapse scenario would work, or how to actually survive through a scenario where government and institutions fail. Yeah, because toilet paper is not gonna—it's not gonna matter. <laughs> you got socks. You got extra shirts. There's there's leaves out there. I mean, you, you <laughs> just make really, sure you use the right leaf. Yeah, if you really got to, you could use your hand. You can just decolonize some, you gravel if you really need to. I mean, just, there's decolonize. So many, yeah, decolonize your toilet paper <laughs> practices. <laughs> decolonize. Yeah. So I like what you say. Uh, I think I heard you say this, where you, you talk about how when we're decolonizing, we're not just de something, deconstructing, or whatever you want to say, but we're also renewing things, something. We're bringing something and creating something new, but all but based on this ancient stuff that's already there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, like uh, I talk with my wife all the time because uh, we also have a grassroots organization called decolonized turtle Island. And uh, that's one of our organizations. Our other organization is uh, people's food sovereignty uh, or yeah, people's food sovereignty program. Uh, but our decolonized is, as um, you know, we have, uh, native professionals in different fields. And um, what we understand is that there's, you know, this perception of decolonization uh, may not be as easy for, you know, as I for another person. So, um, you know, we're, we, we want to, you know, focus it more on like a bridge and um, understand decolonization is kind of working towards um, old practices or old old ways of, of, of native culture that along that timeline um, there may be holes in that bridge due to assimilation or historical other historical traumas that um, if we if we are uh, trying 
to fill those voids that um, we're trying to create new tradition. And then we can, you know, like um, native people are, you know, we're, we're, we have the ability to adapt um, and, and, you know, in times, you know, good and times of bad, uh, I would like a more recent would I would say would be like the, the ghost dance and ghost you know, the shirts, um, you know, during times of um, uh, genocide on, on native communities where they were, you know, participating in ghost dance um, as a, you know, like as a last resort to um, against, you know, these, these forces that were killing them and you know creating that creating that ceremony that never existed before was their ability to adapt to their to their understanding or their situation and so um if we can acknowledge you know even in times of bad that we create these traditions or these these adaptabilities that um we can do that to anything else um and 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 really try to work on it to be a, in a good way that you know that we remember you know, that we can make decolonization um, more accepting or more understanding in our communities. Uh, mm-hmm. Like a, um, something that like a, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not the easiest story to tell people because people are always like, wow, that's crazy. But, um, you know, growing up um, at that math and science camp, we never, you know, we're a bunch of kids from all over all over the United States from different reses, urban situations, you know, res life. Um, we, you know, we went on, you know, as our first like icebreaker um, for the group, for the, uh, for the camp, um, we went and stayed out in the woods in a teepee. And that was the first time I ever stayed in a teepee. Um, and I, I, uh, I, um, they woke us up in the middle of the middle of the night, about two o'clock in, in at night and, and, you know, kind of reenacted, a, a um, a, you know, relocation situation where like some, you know, like the, the army came to the community or came to the village and told everybody to wake up. You have to leave this area right now. And they had like, uh, you know, they had blanks in their guns and they're shooting off guns and they had dogs and stuff and they're, Damn. and yeah i was only that's almost 13. like scared straight yeah was, i was only 13 and i was like <laughs> i was like hardcore yeah it was hardcore and and um you know it's like i will never forget that and i and like it's like it was an extreme way of like decolonizing my perception of the world i live in hmm. but it was like it was like it was like a wide like my eyes were wide open to understand like what our ancestors had to go through and like their sacrifices and struggles. And it's like, that's where I just chalk it up to being like everything that, you know, everything that, you know, that I might go through in my day to day isn't as hard as, as they had it. And, and I just like, uh, it's, it's understanding that, um, you know, um, I have, something to offer to this world and um again just need to let it go forward and just understand my role man that's nuts i've never heard of anything like that that hopefully that didn't scar any kids for life or anything Uh, no uh, we uh some tender-hearted kids were like oh my god let's go mommy (laughs) Uh, it was it was it i I would say it made us tougher you know yeah 
stronger and understanding. And again, just, it's like, I couldn't even imagine what our ancestors had to go through because having a gun in your face is, is, is ridiculous. It's scary. Yeah. That kind of shock to the system is one of the best ways to learn stuff. And that's maybe not as hardcore, but kind of similar to where there is an emotionally charged experience for you, Annie, where you did the walk Mm -hmm. and that got you to think about your ancestors in a different, totally different way. Right. Oh yeah. Um, I had considered myself a pretty in shape person and then to walk that far in three days with being able to rest in a car and in a camper afterwards. Um, And knowing that some people had died on that walk as well um, was, was extremely, um, it became real. I mean, I think that you can uh, uh, not like pretend that it didn't happen, but it's always in the back of your mind. And when it's at the forefront of it, when you're participating in it, um, yeah, it, it, it drastically changes how you, um, think about your ancestors and imagining um, how traumatizing that whole experience would be in understanding that uh, the homeland that you think was your homeland isn't really your homeland. And then looking at where the Bitterroot Valley is today, um, and knowing that that place is extremely racist towards indigenous communities in the Bitterroot Valley, um, you know, it, it's very eye-opening to see how much a place can change in 120 years, in 125 years. Um, and it made me want to step up um, how I presented indigenous knowledge in my own tribe, in my community, and um, because they had went through so much in such a very harsh and brutal way that for me to be in the position I am now is a great privilege and to not recognize what had happened um, and that I had done for, what, 25 years before that walk. Um, you know, it, it, it does kind of it change you in a way that... Um, it's a stark realization of what colonization did. And, um, but it also leads you to education and making sure that you are at the table. I'm glad you're wanting to be a lawyer, Patrick, because I think that there are issues and there are places in the world right now that natives aren't at the table. And I think it is extremely important. And so that walk made me want to step up, um, to teach environmental education in a very different way. Mm-hmm. When you get your blood, yeah. sweat, and tears in it, that's, you know, that's, that's the ingredients. Oh, yeah. For emotion. There's a lot of emotion in those things. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. kind of trippy. It's like you're able to speak with your ancestors through yeah. that yeah. experience. Or they, they're able to, you're at least able to listen mm-hmm. to them. And as a scientist, I think you're taught not to bring emotions into it. Um, especially in like hard science fields where you're just thinking about end numbers, you know, emotions in society and community don't play a huge part of it. And, uh, um, that walk just made me realize that the community, um, 
is who I am. And to me, to not even talk about my community and future research in science is um, not acceptable. That traditional knowledge and community needs to be brought into science. Yeah, the way I see it is we're missing out on a huge data set by not doing that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a totally different kind of data set that will yield result, totally different results, but also uh, that will differ depending on who's looking at it. Um, Do you guys hear that? I hear like a, uh, is that you, Annie? <laughs> it's not me. Okay. Huh. Oh, okay. I, I think we just heard a voicemail, one of your voicemails. Um, oh, yeah, but, uh, no, this, hopefully it wasn't too private or anything no uh there's i'm doing it or I'm, uh, my wife and i are doing elk and uh deer meat distributions yeah. so, regina yeah, madplume i feel like i recognize that name did she used to work here at the front desk yeah yeah i know regina i used to work with her <laughs> yes uh, i don't know if she knows that you uh that you know me and like remembers me oh no she, but, she knows you yeah tell her hi and I heard you guys, you recently had a baby, right? Yeah, we, yeah, I had my first born uh, um, in 2015, and then we just had a baby girl um, in April. Mm. Oh, good luck with that, man. Raising kids is tough. I mean, it's, it's fine. It can be fun and easy, but uh, it's definitely not just babysitting. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, for me, I'm usually worried, like, I, I'm constantly worried that I'm making the wrong choice. And like for them and maybe messing them up 10 years down the road by making the wrong choice. <laughs> I try to, I try not to worry about that too much, but I know that's different than if I was just babysitting somebody's kids. I'm like, yeah, yeah. whatever. I'll fuck them up and they, their parents can help them heal later. No, I, uh, my, uh, my son, um, I try to take him everywhere I go. You know, that's kind of like how my, my, uh, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandpa growing up as, as mm. you can tell, mm-hmm. but, uh, that's kind of like what he did was he'd always just take us along with him to see what he did. And, uh, that's kind of like what I do with Patrick is like, uh, like he's, he's gone, get out the vote. Like he knows what get out the vote or registering voters, registering native voters is, um, he sits at, you know, like, uh, he sits at, you know, when when you know events are going on like sitting at tables and and getting natives to vote like he goes and gets some he'll go walk up to somebody and ask him if they're registered to vote and (laughs) he tells me he's going to be president one day and like it's just like uh you know um uh, that's kind of what it's it's like uh trying to mold him into into a good person a leader you know understanding you know who he is he's a he's a big kid he's bigger you know a bigger than or taller you know than like uh, what he is should be for his age so um you know growing up uh, my teachers always said you're going to be the first person recognized in the room and i was i didn't understand what they meant by that but it's, i was the only native in the room so that's why the people would recognize me but i know my son's going to be like um that type of person where just people recognize him and then i want him to be recognized in a good way yeah yeah, tall people definitely stick out, especially <laughs> if they're confident and they carry themselves well. Yeah, tall people definitely stick out. So yeah, the being a father, being a parent is one of the things in my life that taught me that we wear different masks, we have different characters that we have to play, depending on what we're doing in our lives. 
And though although it's not like we're like multiple characters or dishonest or two-faced in any way, it's really just needs, different needs. Like I know a lot of women that have to work in very professional, um, very kind of dominant fields that have been typically dominated by men for a long time. They, they just don't really succeed unless they're, they, they do that. They, they like go in there. They're very aggressive, very, um, very bold, very outspoken. And, and then, and actually make space for themselves. And then they got to go home and be a mom too. Uh And switching that is really tough for people. And so I I was curious what your thoughts are on like things like uh, gender roles. And I know that there's just certain things my boys like to do that the girls just don't. And I didn't teach them how to do that. And then same with myself. Um, I know some dudes really get into beating, but I've never liked it. But I do love to do things like chop wood. Or I really like to, I don't like stacking wood though. <laughs> That's the thing. I love chopping it, but I hate stacking it. But what do you, in your, is that something that you guys have in your house to kind of embrace traditional gender roles or is it, because I know there's a lot of challenges and changes going on in the wider pop culture today with gender roles and gender identity. And there's some, um, some people it works for some people, but other people it doesn't. And so I'm, I'm just curious if you, if you want to share about that and your opinions on gender roles and how that might play a role in the work you're doing in the future and now. Um, I just like, uh, I just, again, say Native Americans are really able to adapt to their situations and, you know, throughout, you know, throughout our timeline here in Turtle Mountain or Turtle Island, like, uh, you know, we've witnessed a lot of things and have to had to adapt to our situations and in, in many different, you know, many different circumstances. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, what may look like an, a native family today may not look like what a native family looked like, you know, 400 years ago or a thousand years ago. And, um, you know, with our, our need to adapt, you know, to, you know, living in a modern world with like economic status or, you know, um, uh, living conditions or, you know, access to resources, um, being a single parent or not, um, having kids or not, um, you know, there's all these, you know, all these factors to, to, you know, to the way our homes look today. And, um, you know, um, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's only girls in the family and, and the girls have to learn how to hunt. And that's, you know, just an adaptability that happens or, um, and it's just, uh, it's just, I, I just feel people just need to accept, you know, whatever, you know, the person, not, not really, you know, what their role is, but just accept that, you know, who they are and what they, you know, what they're willing or what they're able to contribute um, is probably the most important thing is how can we, you know, how can we sustain this family and, and who all has to pitch in to make sure that we're all fed and we all have warmth at night and we're all clothed and, and all those things, those basic necessities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all humans, men, women, boys, girls. When you look at a bell curve, we're more similar than we are different, even across sex, across cultures, all that yeah. stuff. But when you look at out at the extremes of that bell curve, there are some major differences between men and women. 
Yeah. And, and there are, yeah, there are some things, you know, like, unless, you know, the woman is, can, you know, lift, um, you know, heavy, yeah. heavy weight, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's like some it, tough women out there, man. I've done oh, yeah. some tough chicks. You ever go to the, that's, <laughs> that's just not normal. I mean, most, you go to the Amish slaughterhouse. Yeah. Those women there can carry a whole cow. <laughs> usually, yeah. Usually when we're putting together a lodge, there's at least one tough chick there helping out. Yeah. So, yeah. And th- I mean, that's, and same with men. There's always the guy in the group that's kind of scrawny. He's a little bit quiet, not really the go getter of the group. And so there, there's massive diversity <laughs> in humans. And, uh, trying to categorize us by skin color and race has proven to be one of the least effective ways to understand that diversity, especially when it concerns our behavior. Um, but I, I know that uh, there's definitely a difference in the men, the difference, a difference in the way men express themselves and the way women express themselves. And the, that doesn't mean that it's one way or the other, like that you can put them in nice little boxes. Yeah, no, I, I feel like we're uh, definitely today in Western society always tries to define something with a label and it's like, uh, you know, we're just people or even yeah. that's a label. We're just, you know, we're just doing it and you're doing it, you know. I know people love to label stuff, especially today with memes and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know toxic masculinity is one that flies around, but there's also toxic femininity. And there's yeah. a toxic version of every identity that we live throughout our lives. There's a toxic version Wait. of mom, like motherhood. You ever heard of that overbearing mother, helicopter parents? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. the toxic version of a mom. And with a dad, the toxic version of a dad is someone that hurts his own family. Someone that like abuses his family. That's like the opposite of what they're supposed to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a, uh, but it's like, Almost what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to protect them. So inherently being a dad is like a violent thing because eventually if you got to protect your family, you get better be ready to get violent and you better get, be ready to do it fast yeah. and focused so you don't hurt other people. So I don't know. It's weird. Sunnis, uh, I mean, like, and that's also probably cultural identity too. Cause like, uh, I mean, I'm Zuni too. I mean, our, uh, my Ojibwe side would, you know, is right there with you with being like, you know, got to be able to protect and be a warrior but um my zuni side we're pacifists so we you know we just if we saw the enemy coming we just go to a place where we know that they couldn't reach us and you know we would leave our whole village behind and that was totally fine with us because we could build a new village somewhere else but you know we always knew a place to go to where the enemy couldn't reach us so it's Mm -hmm. like uh, there's all these there's all these identities (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah that's an interesting thing um i've mostly identified with being blackfeet since i was a kid uh but then going and learning from learning from the haudenosaunee and the great law of peace and all that stuff and how pretty much everything they're, they're it's all about making peace a lot of their a lot of stuff i learned from them whereas a lot of the things i do like i learned being blackfeet is about war the uh, how you how to be a better warrior but be, war isn't it's not about being a soldier that's just like one tiny role a warrior plays. So it's very, I think we kind of agree. We just use different words and symbols to mm-hmm. talk. And really, I think it comes down to family. And that's something that we all agree on, whether we're European, Chinese, or Blackbeat, or Zuni, or whatever. We all, that's the most important thing to everybody is family. 
but who you include in your family, I think is the major difference. And anthropologists have identified this, that between indigenous people and more uh, urban sedentary cultures, the primary cultural difference is that, is the, the notion of family versus property, whether um, how you're relating to land and things outside of your direct kin. Whereas mm-hmm. indigenous people typically, I mean, there's definitely variations and exceptions, but typically the, the, the dominant cultural thing is looking at the world as a series of kin relationships, kinship relationships, not just your human relatives, but your rock relatives, your water, like your, there's these relational networks that extend beyond the hum, our human community. And in these more sedentary ones, it's, they, it, it's more of a, uh, if you have your kinship ties and you still relate to land, but it's an ownership relationship, not a kinship relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, this is almost like cultural anthropology 101. <laughs> so this is well-established stuff that they've figured out quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. And that's all. When I learned that, that was a huge eye-opening thing for me to learn that. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> that, that helped me understand so much more like about even things like real estate. And so that's always been really fascinating to me that we all do really, that's the really, no matter what it's family, but who we include in the family is the, the, the big thing. Who's invited to the barbecue. <laughs> yeah, for real. Are those in-laws or the, is that your real family? Yeah. Just your in-laws or he's is my that bro, just, but he's not my bro. Like my mother, bro. Yeah. He's my bro, bro. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think that there's a some that's a hard part about what a lot of this some of these topics we talk about is when it involves multiple institutions it, it's really easy to just kind of ramble about everything. And so in your experience what what do you think has been the biggest one of the biggest hacks or like the biggest things that made the biggest difference in helping you become successful? in in your way in what in the ways you are successful um i'd say um community you know being educated and community organizing mm. um that's probably been like my biggest like skill set that i've i've gained in my life um with with community organizing like uh it's just really you know organizing of people mm-hmm. and 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 also funding and things like that but um, being able to use that, that education has been able to, I can adapt it to any, any, you know, any issue that I'm working on. Um, and then, you know, the situations that, uh, because of my community organizing has put me in, um, definitely meeting like, uh, political leaders, um, like our senators and stuff like that. Um, that's kind of like, you know, with the understanding of, you know, coming to the table with solutions rather than your problems is kind of like, uh, is where I've learned, you know, learned from our, our politicians that, you know, they don't, you know, we have to come with solutions. They just don't want to hear our problems anymore. And it's like, uh, um, that's kind of like where my community organizing comes in. And it's like, uh, whenever we can show, that we're helping out a lot of people with the, our activity. Um, you know, that, that just shows that, you know, there's, 
a greater organization that can occur um, that can make us a more tighter knit community, definitely the tribal community here. Um, and, and those are the, those are my terms of success is like, again, like seeing somebody who, or not being able to see somebody that's hurting. Um, but, um, doing the work that it takes to, to um, know that it will trickle down to, to make it to that person who's hurting, um, is something that, you know, that, that I see as a success. And, um, you know, like, uh, I wrote a plan for the tribe and it didn't go through, but, um, it's a good understanding to, um, and that's kind of like where I'm at right now is, um, uh, you know, I've had, I have these little successes of doing projects, you know, um, on our own and they're indigenous led and, you know, they're, they're, you know, done by, you know, people that I care about, um, that are, are, are taking part in this activity. Um, that's a success to me. Um, but I'm learning that, you know, like, uh, you can't make a, you can't make an old dog or teach an old dog new tricks. You can't make, you know, you can't make, uh, some, a person change, you know, and you can't make a tribe change. And so that's kind of like, mm. uh, what the current situation here is like, uh, mm. I'm just, I've, I've, I've understood that, you know, like if, if the tribe is willing to do something that they'll do it. And, um, and my advocacy can help them, you know, can help them along the way. Um, but my understanding is, you know, the end game, becoming a lawyer, um, understanding what food sovereignty is, how can we protect food sovereignty for not just the Flathead Reservation, but for tribes across Turtle Island? And, um, does this affect tribes in, you know, in Canada? Can we help uh, tribe, tribes in Canada? Or can we help indigenous people in Mexico or South America? Uh, you know, those are, those are you know, kind of my envisions, you know, going forward. And, and what I hope to see is a success is again, you know, um, organizing tribes together in a collaboration or a collective effort um, so that we can tackle um, greater issues that, you know, plague us, you know, across the board. Mm. Yeah. I like how you put that. You can't make a dog do old dog, new, do new tricks. And I totally agree because you can't make anybody do anything. Even if you got a gun to their head, they're deciding at some point they're just willing to like compromise. Yeah. So that's the, the, that interesting point to remember that. Yeah. An old, you can't make an old dog learn new tricks, but they can learn new tricks if they want yeah. to, if they decide to. And that's the trick on uh, is to figure out how to get people to do it, how, uh, not get them to do it, but how to convince them that they want to do it. To, to show them like, hey, look, this is actually something you already want to do anyway. And make it easy and, for them to say yes. That's, maybe, that's hard. That's really hard. And maybe, you know, or this is off, off going off subject, but like, uh, you know, with tribal, tribal nations and stuff like that, you know, they're, they're, you know, cookie cutter systems of, you know, governments that were imposed on us. And, and um, you know, they, they may not, you know, work, you know, and every tribe is different, you know, every tribe is exerting their sovereignty in different ways. And some tribes are more, you know, exerting than others. Um, you know, that what I'm learning with this food sovereignty stuff is, it's, you know, it's better to do, you know, like to, to make it community led or, you know, make it like aside from the government and look up, you know, look to the government to help with some of the projects, you know, carry out the projects. But, uh, um, unless the tribe again is willing to do it themselves, um, you know, there's a lot of political baggage that, you know, that, 
goes through that, you know, that route going down the government route. And sometimes it's just easier to get things done on, as on the outside. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you. I, th- I think as, as little as possible, I think the government should just stay out of people's business, but there, there is a definitely a good function. There, it's a necessity. I'm when I was younger, I may have been an anarchist because I was like, ah, oh, screw the man. But nowadays I realize actually it's kind of important to have the government around to make sure people don't do horrible things because some people are horrible people and they were born that way. It's what they call psychopaths. <laughs> but, uh, and it's nice to have the government around to make sure they're not running amok. But other than things like that, or like to like protect us from being conquered by some crazy genocidal dictator across the planet, things like that. But yeah, yeah. But, it's more of accountability for me trying to yeah. hold these people that you know have been screwing us over forever. Again, learning our education for protecting yeah. people's rights. That's yeah. really the way it is. I think that's yep. the government's only role is to protect our rights, and they should be held accountable to do that for everyone. So that's the way I see my rights is for each one of my rights that I cherish. I also have the responsibility to protect that for everyone else. Yeah. And, 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 and like, uh, uh, I talked about it too in our meeting yesterday, but, but just like, um, you know, my, you know, the get out the vote work that I do and like native voting rights, um, that I do, it's, it's, um, and, and then also, you know, like, uh, you know, it didn't start with me knowing that, you know, like, uh, there's important people like, uh, um, like the, uh, Montana, um, Indian caucus in the state legislature mm-hmm. or, um, or, you know, important advocates in, in voting rights throughout Montana history, uh, prior to, you know, the work that I've been doing and, and knowing that those people, um, and then there's people stories here I hear about here where, you know, back in the day where natives were trying to get other natives to vote, you know, they were, you know, they were met with violence and, and hmm. that, you know, I'm not, I'm not the first one to do this stuff and that there's people prior to me that, you know, laid the groundwork, um, that, um, that this is just opening more doors, hopefully that, you know, there's going to be a, a, a youngster that comes around that, that really does care about their community and is willing to sacrifice themselves to become, you know, a leader amongst their community and run for office. And, you know, um, you know, and that, that may, that person might intrigue someone else. And it could be what I'm trying to do is kind of like have a wildfire effect and, and trying to just get more people to understand uh, that, that they have an identity, uh, that they matter that their values and morals matter and that, you know, they can, they can put their values and morals in a vote. They can uh, vote for leaders. They can, they, if, you know, if they feel, if they feel intrigued enough that they can run for office and uh, that people, you know, if they, if their message is strong enough that people will listen to them and vote for them. And hopefully when, if, if they win and they get in, um, that's another form of success is getting more Indians again at the, on the, at the table participating engaged um you know that's Mm. that's kind of where i want indian country to go is become more involved so that we can start setting the our policies that we want for our areas for our communities Mm. yeah 
I like the the your uh, I don't know if that's an analogy or a metaphor. It's meant, I think it's a metaphor. Oh, I guess that's an analogy, like a wildfire, uh, because I'm an ecologist, so I view wildfires as a good thing, as long as you haven't been suppressing them for a hundred years. Yeah. So that's the that's uh, interesting how different people would view that that saying like a wildfire some people might be like oh my god that's bad you're gonna you want to burn everything down (laughs) but when i hear it i'm like oh wow so you want to like go through and clean up the forest and make way for new life for new ideas you're not burning anything down so that's an interesting way to view that because i'm sure people would hear that you say that and be like what you want to destroy everything but is that that's not what you intend is it you you don't want to like spread like a wildfire yeah, to spread like a wildfire. So it's it's funny how these these sayings we use can be used in all these different or interpreted in different ways. It's always fascinating to me how people, depending on maybe what movies they've seen growing up or what kind of language there was used in their house, like the phraseology of their parents and things like that. Um, When um, you were working with Western Native Voice, right, and it was the get out the vote, you, and you're going around to different people, how did you go about informing them about the candidates? Did, did you, I, I'm mostly curious how you, did you remain unbiased or did you give them like a brochure with all the candidates and then kind of just answer the questions or did you give them like a pamphlet for each candidate that's running or uh, I'm just curious what would the process look like? when you went and talked to people to inform them about uh, voting and um, the candidates? Well, uh, I've worked for Western Native. My last time working with Western Native Voice was the 2018 election. Mm -hmm. Uh, This election I worked uh, uh, with the Democratic Party, Montana Democratic Party. Okay. And so um, they're, you know. Oh, okay. So is it, so it was with one party? Is that correct? Where you go and work? Yeah, the 2020 election was was strictly with the Democratic Party. <clears throat> okay. And so, um, you know, uh, I've been doing get out the vote, or I mean, I've been in politics or like working, you know, in this realm since like 2012, 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started doing uh, get out the vote for the Flathead Reservation in 2016. And, uh, you know, with, you know, the political financing laws that, that you know, are in place, there's all these like uh, red tape about like um, um, how you can, you know, promote parties or candidates. And then, you know, like uh, it has to be with like your, um, your nonprofit status, you know, are you a 501c3 or are you a 501c4? And there's all these like, you know, financial laws that are, that, you know, kind of like dictate, you know, how we're able to, um, communicate with, you know, with our, you know, when we go and canvas or go interact, engage with mm-hmm. the tribal community. And so when I go door to door, depending on what hat I'm wearing at that moment, um, will be kind of like the type of advocacy that I'm allowed to do. And mm-hmm. so depending on like, you know, who's paying me at that moment, it will be like what my messaging will be. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, I've, I've, um, had the opportunity also during the 2018 election to not just work for a 501c3 and a 501c4, but I also was an intern for the tribal underneath tribal council uh, for the get out the vote efforts for the tribe. And, 
and that allowed me to um, organize a um, candidate forum. Mm, and okay. so I, I feel, you know, like if it's, if it's engaging a tri a tribal member or tribal citizen, um, my work I feel is best done when I'm not necessarily talking about candidates, but just talking about the importance for them. And, um, you know, definitely them participating, um, is like, kind of like, um, our, you know, our modern day, um, little bighorn battle that happens every two to four years, depending on what election it is. And so, um, I kind of make it like, you know, we, we need all of us there, you know, it takes, it's going to take this village to, you know, to, um, to make sure, you know, that our voice is heard or that, you know, that, you know, our votes matter, you know, and, and, um, and try to, you know, try to, you know, gain their interest or gain their, you know, involvement based on, you know, like we need you, you know, not, not necessarily like, um, like pushing one candidate or the other, because, uh, other than, you know, this year where I, you know, that was my job was to push, you know, the democratic candidates mm -hmm. for the state is <clears throat> just, is, is getting them first, you know, you first have to, you know, get through their, um, their voter apathy and, and, and you have to be able to understand, you know, you're fighting, uh, you're fighting, you know, hundreds of years of, of, uh, oppression and, and really, you know, I've had some, I've had some very intense and very great moments, you know, like where, you know, you're, you're teaching, you know, a, a tribal person who has a felony, you know, that they have the right to vote because they're not in jail, you know, they're not currently incarcerated or, you know, like we, you know, that we do have an Indian caucus here in, in the state of Montana and no other state has that. Or, um, you know, uh, just understanding, you know, like uh, Jim Crow laws restricting, you know, African-American communities and how those policies trickled into tribal communities and that, um, you know, having, you know, having policies in place that just promote uh, voter um, inclusion or, you know, voter participation is what we should be working towards. Um, that's, that's the type of advocacy that like uh, I try to get tribal people uh, more in tune with um, just so that they know that, you know, that um, when they do participate in the system um, that there are people that are working to make sure that they aren't participating and their vote doesn't count. And that's got to say something too. That says a lot. That you know, there are people, Republicans mostly, that are spending a lot of money to make sure that natives don't vote. Yeah. Um, How are they? Like, in what ways? It's just misinformation, putting out misinformation, um, not engaging in the community at all, not even having a program that even exists in their in their structure that um, promotes um, tribal participation. You know, um, yeah. In, in, in politics, you can really say, you know, money, you know, money speaks and, and the way that, um, a party or, or a candidacy, um, allocates their money and what they allocate it towards says a lot. And so, um, you know, I always try to just, you know, just let the tribal member know that, you know, without saying parties or anything like that, that, you know, there's people working to make sure that you don't vote and that your voice isn't, doesn't count. But I'm here, and I'm I'm here to ensure that 
it's an easier process that you have somebody that, you know, cares about you that wants, you know, that it's encouraging you to vote and we'll, we'll make sure that your vote will count whenever it's handed in. And, um, you know, a lot of people appreciate that because they, they just don't have, you know, the understanding, the education about um, how you know voting works uh, and, and being able to be the person that can contribute, you know, to their participation um, is kind of what the, what the job entails. So um, it's, it's just for all the, for all the hardship that native people have felt, it's getting them to understand that somebody is here to help and that we do care for, care for you. Mm -hmm. So with the Republican party, as far as uh, the money they're spending to make sure people aren't voting, when you say that, are you primarily talking about just the misinformation or is it in other ways? Well, just as an example, like this election, um, there wasn't an, an, a native outreach in mm -hmm. the Republican party. Yeah. So it's and, like what they're not spending their money on. Yeah. It's, it's about, we have what, you know, what exists, what doesn't exist. Um, that's, you know, that's, that says a lot. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, like, uh, I don't know if you, I don't know if you pay attention, but there's like a lot of like, uh, mailers that go out that just, uh, that are meant to misinform people about dates or, um, you know, um, certain regulations or, are just plainly meant to misinform them for whatever reason. I don't like, they do, they put out those things and, and, you know, they get, they get caught, you'd say, or they, you know, they get, um, they get fined and it's pretty much like a slap on the wrist to them. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's really understanding who, who's got the best interest off for you. Who's, who's, you know, out or spending resources, um, and who, who's willing to let you have a seat at the table. Hmm. That's pretty much it. Okay, so yeah, who's willing to even work with you in the first place? Mm. <clears throat> that makes sense. Yeah, and I know I've noticed there. I'm very disappointed with the news in general, just as an institution, the mainstream stuff anyway, because I feel like that's like been the norm. This last election was misinformation on both sides, mm. and holy crap, I, I just kind of got sick of it after a while. So yeah, I recently. I stopped paying so much attention, but yeah, the, where people getting like people get all these, that's always been so annoying. And pretty much everyone I know is all the ads you get in the mail on around election time. And my kids were annoyed to endlessly by the stuff on YouTube. They try to watch YouTube mm -hmm. or something and they get bombarded by these political ads. And eventually they start making fun of them and repeating them, mocking these politicians. And I'm just like, yeah, that's that's the way that you did things in the old days. That's not going to work anymore. People, have, I mean, we've we've. It's weird because it's like uh, we we used to think, oh, you need to have these 15 minute shows, otherwise people will tune out and leave. But we've, I mean, things like Joe Rogan having three hour podcasts, these super long shows like Game of Thrones. It's like an 80 hour movie, probably longer. It's blown that myth to shreds that we have. Oh, we only have short attention spans. Yeah. I mean, we kind of do, but I mean, we also don't. If you catch our attention and you get us interested and, and touch on something that is important to us, 
that is really what where it's at and uh, and sometimes it just has to be engaging enough <laughs> like um a lot of things on the internet are just designed to be super engaging and i know video games are designed to be super engaging to keep your attention as long as possible so yeah. there's always that balance we got to try to get with that so when you're when you're working with these when you're out there working with folks um helping them did you did you have like a maybe a list or a pamphlet or something of resources so they could if they're interested they could go and do their own research and learn about candidates and stuff like that and figure out where their interests are yeah there's there's like uh, i mean there wasn't too much indigenous uh based um i know the i know west native voice puts out like a legislative voting card Mm-hmm. And that that you know just details you know state legislators and then also our um, federal officials that um, you know their their voting records or what you know the way they stand on certain issues and and organizations like Ford Montana um, put out good voter guides that um, that are um, bipartisan or nonpartisan um, that you know just you know on the on the issue where the candidate stands. And isn't meant to like promote one or the other. It's just, just you know, neutrally labels how they how they stand. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot there's those things that we that we get out. Um, you know, I I don't encourage people to watch um, a lot of times. Like you're saying, like the media has become more opinionated, and uh, there has to be you know each side to the coin as they'd say, and you could say like MSNBCs for the Democratic side and Fox News is, is the Republican. Um, so I, I try to tell people to stay away from those types of media sources. I think that's good advice. Yeah, and, and stay, you know, I, I watch Democracy Now. Um, that's like a, a place where I get um, a lot of my information. And that's kind of mainstream else, too. Yeah, and or else like C-SPAN. You know, watching things that are like oh, yeah. raw, you know, the, that aren't <laughs> yeah, edited. True. I really love that. Long form interviews. I think that's the best way to communicate. Yeah. Not these five minute programs where you got like the panel, you know, where they line everyone up next to each other and they yeah. all argue. Like one will say things for like five seconds and the other one will jump in and say things and they're all trying to get their 30 seconds in. It could be that's very counterproductive. Like so weird to watch. Yeah. <laughs> and then like long form interviews. That's, I think where it's at in the elections you know like you can watch msnbc um, and then they already yeah, have hey uh i think is one of your headphones near your microphone i might be causing some feedback oh is that better uh yeah not head yeah i think okay. i think that was that was it okay and so i was just saying like uh like uh you can watch c-span and msnbc right now and they already have a countdown to the next election and i think that's crazy what? Yeah. <laughs> whoa that's that's really it's like the ESPN hmm. of our politics and interesting, just, yeah. Uh, sports center of our <laughs> politics. <laughs> oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, like it's, I said, I kind of tuned out the last few weeks. Yeah, it's destructive. It's it's not good for anybody, and it just causes, I would say, emotional imbalance too. For real, yeah, especially twenty-four hour news cycles. Like, uh, it's not good to be stressed that frequently. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm curious because this is really a lot of this seems like it's a an effect, like a side effect of new technology. 
and how I wonder how we're going to adapt because there, there's all it's always a thing with new technology. There's always problems. Ever since we came up with clubs and knives, people have been getting bonked and cut. So I, I've, I'm, that's something I'm really interested in is who's working on this? Is there anybody like any researchers or what kind of scientists or who's actually working on how or if we can adapt to this new, extremely powerful technology like social media? Or the, uh, what, the internet, yeah. If you look at like Standing Rock and like that, that was like a major exposing of like how organizations like CNN took almost a year to get involved with the No Dapple protests hmm. and how um, um, organizations like Unicorn Riot are like on the ground giving live feeds of current the current news and there was no other major media around to cover that yeah um yeah it's just it's just it's a reality check about like the people really do have the power once you know if they if they go for it you know Mm -hmm. it's the internet it kind of really did give people the most powerful tool we've ever had again um to have some to have the autonomy from the government we've never really had this kind of a tool before and it's proving to be extremely powerful and beneficial in ways but also very destructive in other like with fake fake news it's totally a thing memes that float around there are just total nonsense and people uh, will end up believing it and millions of people then millions of people will think that's a fact is a fact when it's just a total fabrication and so, and that happens pretty frequently and it happens because of things like the internet and social media, not necessarily because humans changed a bunch in the last 20, 30, 40 years, but it's our technology. Well, with the, like the George Floyd protest too, as well in Minneapolis, um, there was a organization that was created. It's a grassroots organization called uh, the Black Jackets and they're all strictly, um, you know, people who went to school for media production and things like that, who joined this organization and they're doing ground um, reporting of all these, you know, social injustices or, you know, social unrest. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now, now they're, now they're an organized effort where, you know, they're getting funding and things like that. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, the, that's the, you know, that's what we, we'd probably see, you know, with a, a, corporate ownership of how we get our news and then, you know, a product of, of people and organization um, and then them butting heads. And then we're just seeing it, you know, it's like, where do you get your news? Is it from the TV or is it, you know, from your timeline? If it's from your timeline, who are you getting that from? You know, are they That's, credible? All the timeline is, is a bubble. Also, yeah. you're just going to get what other, because the way it recommends things that it thinks you want. And <laughs> the more you like, people's stuff the more it's going to give you that not necessarily the truth it's not a truth bubble it's mm-hmm. uh oh man have you heard of that show the social dilemma on netflix no. it's about this stuff man it's creepy and i've been wary of it for a long time but yeah algorithms are scary and people pers- assuming that they they uh know what you want or know what you like is it's creepy and but uh it's like, uh, I don't know, my, my Facebook timeline is pretty funny. It's just like resi memes and then uh, food sovereignty and, uh, and like 
uh, really just legislation and things mm. like that. So I'm pretty lucky that there's not too much like spam or, you know, fat on my timeline. Yeah. Yeah. I like to go into the um, Montana news Facebook posts and read the comments. That's how I uh, see the other side of different <laughs> yeah. political views is, is going through those comments. <laughs> My brother will straight up watch Fox News to know his enemy. I'm like, dude, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, there's it's, not, it's not all bad. There's wrong. some okay yeah. stuff on there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's what, yeah, the politics that gets crazy real fast. Talking, there's a reason why you're not supposed to do that when you're at the bar drinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. I can barely talk about things that I that like I know a bunch about, let alone yeah. politics. <laughs> when I'm uh, so my, yeah, uh, man. Um, we're My coming family, up, uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, we're coming up on three hours or two and a half hours. So it's kind of crazy how quickly that goes. And um, I know Annie has another meeting to get to. And uh, there's there's always so much, and it's tough to bring these conversations to an end. But um, I would, I'd like to give you the opportunity to do is just let us, let our listeners know what you're up to right now, where, what kind of work you're doing and where people can find you. And then after that, what would be your three tips for people to be indigenous in the modern world? Well, uh, right now I'm currently uh, participating with my wife, Regina Madbloom, uh, in a grassroots effort called uh, People's Food Sovereignty Program. And um, our mission is just to uh, implement projects and programs here on the Flathead Reservation um, regarding food sovereignty. And so, uh, right now we, we handed out, uh, with some, um, donations, um, from local, uh, Missoulin nonprofits, uh, turkeys for Thanksgiving. We gave out, uh, turkeys to tribal, tribal, uh, community members, uh, for Thanksgiving. And then, um, right now, uh, through donations from the, uh, uh, bison range national bison range um, receiving elk and we are processing that uh, through cares act funding to get to tribal uh, community members here on the flathead reservation nice. and uh, that includes both cskt members and um, any other um, enrolled member of any other federally recognized tribe mm-hmm. um, so we're focused on you know we're focused on uh, a tribal uh, tribally um Maintaining these programs in a, in, in tribal hands, I would say. And, uh, that's one project we're doing. We're, uh, and you can find us on Facebook. Um, uh, we're making posts, uh, on our activities, uh, as they come. Um, we also have a donation, um, to our PayPal account on there too, as well. Uh, we also are running, a decolonized turtle Island, um, which is a, um, a nationwide, uh, basically promoting indigenous sovereignty, indigenous uh, federal Indian policy, tribal stork preservation efforts, um, health policy, and things like that uh, for tribal communities across Turtle Island. Um, and so you can find us too on Facebook too as well, uh, uh, Turtle uh, Decolonized Turtle Island. And uh, part of MIFSI with Lucia, um doing a statewide effort to try to organize tribes around food sovereignty. 
Oh yeah. So underground, <laughs> we don't even have Facebook page yet. <laughs> don't even have Facebook page yet. So what was but, the uh, first uh, first one you said? What Facebook page was that? People's it's called food sovereignty. The, the People's Food Sovereignty. Yeah. Okay. People's Food Sovereignty Program. Yep. And um, yeah, they can. We have a link to our donation on there. <clears throat> We're not really accepting donations for decolonize yet. Um, and then uh, I do community organizing efforts for get out the vote uh, and also go to um, speak for testimony at the Capitol. Um, you know, a lot of those times are last minute. So, uh, you know, we try to um, get as much people as we can to go make it to those to those meetings. And sometimes, you know, that requires like uh, renting a van or, or getting gas. So we appreciate people who help us out during those situations. Um, and then uh, I guess uh, you said three things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your three tips for being indigenous in the modern world. Okay. Um, I guess personally, um, I start with like, uh, you know, having a having a relationship with the creator is probably my my foundation um and and it's you know um built on you know it's built on uh an understanding that you know i'm not asking for anything but i'm just um just asking for good health and and the courage and again the um the courage and and the strength to you know keep going and and that I think is probably my first, you know, my first recommendation is just having that solid relationship. And if you don't have that, you know, like uh, reach out to people that, um, that, that may help you get to that point or may help you uh, understand that connection. Um, second, second, I would say is, uh, go to school. Um, or if you don't go to school, you know, learn a trade and become the best at it. Um, you know, hard work, pays off and hard work will get you to where you need to go. And, um, and, uh, you know, my route was going, you know, finishing school and, and, you know, gaining skills, learning skills. So, you know, I recommend finishing college to any, any travel person. I think that that's a, that's a good, it's a good way to have foundation for, you know, economic, um, sustainability in your life as well as, being able to have the resources to start a family or, you know, whatever you may want to do in your life that you have those resources available. Um, my third would be, uh, uh, to, um, and I've been, I've been learning this myself is to understand your worth, um, understand, uh, that, that, again, that your you matter, your identity matters, um, your values matter, your morals, um, that, you know, they don't just have to stay in your home. Um, if you have good, if you, if you can promote good and put good in this world, that there's probably other people that, um, you know, um, would appreciate or, or, or benefit from your, you know, projection of your good into the world. So, um, mm-hmm. don't ever give up. And, and when you know your worth, you know, um, own your work, and uh in in Indian country you know a lot of times people like to research us and and gain data that you know they use for themselves and and uh, you know as we become more educated um we can you know we can design the projects or programs 
so that they're, you know, they, they follow, you know, our cultural sensitivities or, you know, that they, um, they don't, they don't, um, harm any taboo for us or anything like that, that, you know, that we are in the driver's seat and we are the ones that are collecting the data and we own that data and that, um, no one can take that away from us. Mm. Hmm. Yep. Good ones. Those are very I think good that ones. middle one is, well, I, I like that one. I don't think anybody's said that yet. Hard work. And that's definitely something I believe in, man, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then knowing your worth. Yeah, knowing where you can give value to people, where you can give back to the world. Something you're really good at and become mm-hmm. the best at it. That's awesome. Yeah, good ones, dude. Yeah, those are really good ones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I said, these I, are mean, always- I think about these things all the time. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's good to be clear about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, these, yeah, these conversations are always hard to end. So I think we, I think it's a good high note to end it on. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm Appreciate glad we were it. able to finally have you on here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Me too. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes. And five stars. Five stars. Just because, five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah. And you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we also have a website. Yes, we do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. But if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but indianscienceshow.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W dot wordpress dot com. Thank you for lending us your ears, and now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.